Hey everyone, welcome to episode 74 of the Julia LaRoche Show. We are recording this episode on the afternoon of Thursday, May 4th. Today's guest is Bob Elliott. He is the founder and CEO of Unlimited, which uses machine learning to create index replication ETFs of two and 20 style alternative investments like hedge funds, venture capital, and private equity. Before Unlimited, Bob was a senior investment executive at Bridgewater Associates, which is the world's largest hedge fund founded by Ray Dalio. While at Bridgewater, he was on the investment committee for many, many years. Bob also built and led Ray Dalio's personal research team for nearly a decade. Uh, we cover a lot in this episode. In the hour, we get into the macro environment. We also dive into the regional banks and inflation dynamics and much, much more. I really enjoyed having Bob on the show. I learned a lot from him and I think you will too. By the way, uh, if you're new to the channel, welcome. It's so great to have you. Please be sure to hit that like button and subscribe so you won't miss any new episodes. This, this show is completely free and your support will help me bring in more of these long form conversations as we try to piece together what's happening in the macro economy. And if you're listening to the podcast, uh, please be sure to leave a rating and a review if you feel so inclined so you can help more folks find these episodes. Again, your support means so much to me. I appreciate all of you. Please engage with me in the comment section. I love hearing from you and I hope you enjoy this episode with Bob Elliott. Bob Elliott, founder and CEO of Unlimited, which uses machine learning to create index replication ETFs of the two and 20 style alternative investments like hedge funds, venture capital, and private equity. And also I read Bob in your bio that uh, you were on the investment committee for many, many years at Bridgewater Associates, which is the hedge fund behemoth founded by uh, Ray Dalio, and that you also built and led uh, Ray's personal investment research for many, many years. It is so great to meet you and welcome you on the show, especially uh, during this crazy week. Great to have you on, Bob. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It is uh, an exciting time in markets, uh, so it uh, seems like a great opportunity to to connect. Exactly. Well, let's start um, where I usually like to start with my guest, and that is the big picture, kind of your macro view, your macro framework, um, especially in light of um, recent events. Uh, what is that big picture for you, that big picture assessment of the global macro economy, also domestically here in the US? And also if you wanna just throw in as well, markets as well. Um, let's kind of start there with the big picture. Sure, I, I think you know for many people, um, they haven't, many people haven't experienced what I describe as a typical macroeconomic cycle in their careers. Like if you think about the last two main downturns that people remember, right, it was COVID, which was, you know, unusual, certainly. And then you had the financial crisis before that, which was an acute, you know, financial crisis type dynamic. And instead, what we're experiencing here, by and large, is a uh, a typical late cycle uh, 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 macroeconomic dynamic, which is that you know the economy is relatively tight, unemployment's at secular lows, um, you know growth has rebounded considerably since COVID. Uh, the combination of those tight labor markets with relatively significant fiscal stimulation that came uh, during the COVID period and remains sort of in the system, the fiscal and monetary stimulation that existed during COVID, the supply shocks that occurred as a result of COVID. You sort of put all those things together and we had 
uh, an increase in inflation um, that you you know was not that surprising given that set of dynamics, and that increase in inflation has been exacerbated and elongated because we're late in a cycle. Uh, and that increase in inflation has now flowed through to wages. It's not a spiral. It's just a what I describe as it is maintaining or elevated wage growth is maintaining the continuation of inflation. And then, of course, the Fed, who is a bit late to respond to the elevated inflation, is responding with tighter monetary policy. And they're trying to figure out exactly how tight they need to be in order to start to loosen the tightness in the labor markets in order to bring that inflation down. I think the main thing from a framework perspective um, that's important to keep in mind here is not only are we experiencing a cycle that many people haven't really known, which, you know, it, it, typical macroeconomic cycle takes a long time to play out. These are not instantaneous events. The other thing we're experiencing, which is very different, is that we're experiencing an income-led cycle, not a credit-led cycle. And that what that means is that uh, as long as that employment remains relatively strong, right, demand remains relatively strong, and spending remains relatively strong, and the cycle continues. So even though you might get some loosening or, or deterioration in borrowing, what's really going on is that incomes are growing pretty well, and that's keeping things going. So that income-led cycle, not credit-led cycle, it's very different. Haven't seen one of those cycles since the 70s. And that's really confusing people. You add this all up, and the basic dynamic that we're seeing is, yes, we're on a path to eventually get to a point where there will be a recession. It's just it takes much longer in reality than I think most people expect or have experienced. And that's really been the surprise through the whole thing. Wow. Okay. So it takes longer to get there. And, you know, um, I imagine you're someone who has spent a lot of time looking at past cycles and you bring up the seventies. It's interesting. Cause I had a guest, um, kind of analogize this period to the eighties. Um, I want to hear more on the seventies analogy. Um, and I want to dig more into this idea of it being income led. I, I haven't heard that yet. That's fascinating to me. I would love to just hear more on that thesis. How does that play out? Yeah. I mean, most of us, if you think about like, you know, COVID was sort of unique in, in the way that it worked. But if you go back to the 08 cycle, which is the experience that, you know, most of us have, that is most uh, familiar in our minds, you know, what happened that drove the expansion during the 2008 cycle was a significant increase in particularly household borrowing that went into the real estate market and also was used in order to increase, you know, spending and consumption in the economy more broadly. And what happened there was a relatively modest set of tightening and interest rate rises basically caused that cycle to collapse. And when the credit collapsed, spending collapsed, asset prices collapsed, and we saw, you know, then a secondary effect of the banks then went broke, and that created the acute crisis that we saw. The, the situation with this cycle is, is quite a bit different. Most you know, households, in terms of their borrowing, haven't, haven't done much borrowing. And what borrowing they have done, they've locked in very low rates for an extremely long period of time. Most corporations haven't done a whole lot of borrowing going into the cycle, you know, into this period. And mostly what drove the expansionary cycle was this initial large fiscal transfer. You know, so the government borrowed a lot uh, and transferred money to, to households, which allowed them to continue to 
to spend despite you know more challenging economic conditions. And that was financed by monetary policy printing. And that cycle what means that you know households are not out there borrowing a bunch of money to do their to the to do their spending and corporations aren't borrowing a bunch of money to do investment. Instead, both households and corporations are financing what they're doing out of their income. And that's a very different story because income is much more durable, right? As long as you're basically spending what you're earning and if anything actually what we see is households are starting to increase their savings in this you know over the course of the last year the savings rates rising not falling. And so you have high nominal wage growth with increasing savings, which means that their spending is very durable, right? They're not, this is not a problem. This is not an unsustainable dynamic the way it was back in 2008. And the same thing mostly is true for corporations, which have, you know, significant cash buffers, have locked in very low rates, interest rates. And so they're also not particularly sensitive to the rise in interest rates from the Fed. Mm. Okay. Um, but areas that are sensitive, I want to bring up with you because um, this week, um, and we had another bank failure. Um, we, also, we had First Republic happen this week. Um, then we had the FOMC meeting and kind of some of the comments from Fed Chair Jay Powell that things are sound. And then a couple hours later, we have um, the headlines around PacWest. What are your thoughts on the banking crisis, how would you characterize it? What is kind of your take on the whole situation? Well, um, I, I think it's important not to jump to uh, conclusions that that what's going on right now is similar to what happened in 2008. Um, banks today are meaningfully better capitalized and the types of assets that are of concern primarily are those that um, are, are are primarily actually treasuries that they used to uh, that they invested in with the significant increase in deposits that came as a function of the significant monetary stimulation and money printing that the Fed did. And I think you know the basic issue that we that we face with the regional banks today is uh, one that banks always face, which is this this imbalance between what could be mark to market issues with uh, against, you know, uh, asset mark to market issues against deposits, which typically are very sticky, but increasingly can move quickly and cause a problem. The basic issue with these regional banks, no bank can withstand a bank run. No matter how well structured functioning it is, banks don't can't withstand fast moving withdrawals of their deposits. And that's because at its core, what a bank does is it transforms immediate deposits into longer term assets, right? And so that's the basic issue that we've seen with many of these banks is that uh, the deposit base, uh, the, asset, the assets move around in terms of their value and on mark to market basis, but are sound, right? But that has created concern. And when I say they're sound, like they're holding treasury bonds and agency MBS. Those bonds are money good at par at maturity. There's no question about that, right? Against the deposit base. So if, if they're allowed to mature, there's no problem, right? The bank has more than enough capital to pay off the deposits. 
The problem is those securities have volatility until they get to that point. And if the deposits stick, no problem. But if the deposits run, then they have to sell those securities, which are currently on a mark-to-mark basis at below their original par. And that creates a gap in their capital, which creates uh, the, the realization of insolvency in a relatively quick basis. And that's basically what we've seen is that a recognition that on a mark-to-market basis, there are some banks that basically have long-term duration risk primarily, and that as a result of that, if you were to mark-to-market the book, they would be insolvent or have low capital. And then that has spooked depositors who are not protected, uh, you know, the depositors that have more than $250,000, which you know, mostly are small businesses that have deposits over two hundred fifty thousand mm-hmm. dollars, and they get spooked. You know whether they were venture funded before with SVB or you know more recently other small businesses, they get spooked that they're going to lose the value of their deposits and go and move those deposits quickly into other banks, and that creates the bank run, and then the banks die because they have a bank run, and that's the basic issue. Is we have a series of bank runs that are creating this problem, right? Which otherwise, if the banks were allowed to just proceed normally, by and large, wouldn't be a big deal. Most of these banks on a, on a book value basis, right? If you the bonds were deemed a par over the life of the instrument and the deposits stayed there, these banks would mostly be fine. Hmm. Is that... Um... I saw a tweet of yours and I'd love to get you to explain it. And I'll kind of paraphrasing um, when you talk about it being, it's not, it's not primarily a credit problem. It's a policy problem. Can you explain that? Yeah. Yeah. If you go back to 2008 um, and, and for perspective, I led Bridgewater's research on uh, the banking crisis in 2008 and, you know, interfaced with many folks in government to navigate through that cycle. So I'm intimately familiar with, um, with what a bad bank looks like. And the banks today look nothing like that. Back in 2008, banks invested a great deal into mortgage bonds of all sorts. And then what we realized was that those mortgage bonds would default, that the people, the money that was expected to be paid back would never be paid back. And when there was a recognition of that, the banks then uh, looked insolvent and they needed to be recapitalized. The circumstance here is very different um, because the primary issue, the primary issue for most of these banks is their duration exposure, their holding of, of long, longer dated bonds that have a negative mark to market because you know interest rates have risen. That's the primary problem. Uh, and the main issue with that is that they will get paid back no matter what, right? Those bonds will redeem at par. I am, you know, that, that is certain um, because, you know, the treasury can, you know, the, the U.S. will not default on its bonds. Um, and the main issue is whether the deposits remain in the system in, in those banks long enough to uh, achieve that occurrence. And that's where I say there's a policy problem. The policy problem is, you know, if you have under $250,000, like, you know, you don't even think about what bank you're banking in primarily because you're guaranteed. But for, for small businesses that have deposits over 250,000, and we're not even talking about, we're not talking huge businesses. We're talking like, you know, $250,000 is like payroll for a 25 to 50 person business on a biweekly basis. You know, it's not like huge 
huge companies we're talking about here. Um, you know, if you're in that situation, what it looks, you have a risk, a meaningful risk that, or you can, you can quickly get to the point where you think you have a meaningful risk that your money, that you're going to lose money if the bank is insolvent. And so what do you do? You naturally do what any responsible person would do is you try and get out of the bank. The second that you see the whiff of concern, you get out of the bank. And that actually is what creates the problems that we're seeing, not the assets, not the credit, it's the run. And so in order to deal with the run issue, that's a policy problem. The problem is that the FDIC guarantee infrastructure, basically, you know, it hasn't been updated in more than a decade, and it doesn't really work for lots of businesses who have to run on bank rails to pay all of their day-to-day -day expenses, right, but only have that $250,000 coverage. Of course, there's ways, you know, people will say there's lots of different ways that you can get around that and run different, you know, schemes, but if you're running a 20 person business or 25 person business, like you're not a institutional cash manager at a major corporation, right? You're running, you're focused on running your business, not figuring out how do you diversify your banking relationships to ensure that all your deposits are under $250,000. And so what we need is a policy, a policy approach that, uh, that updates the framework uh, and that provides coverage for transactional activities for businesses and others. Um, that is above that $250,000. And if you moved it to say 5 million, as an example, at SVB, there wouldn't have been a run. Okay, so they need to increase what they insure for the depositors, and then you would you could prevent the run. Exactly, exactly. Because the only reason why you run is because you're concerned you're going, you're going to lose the, the value of your deposits. That's the way, that's the reason why you run fast. Mm. There's a longer term arc which is, well, banks offer lower deposit yields than money market funds. And over time, people will move their money out from small banks, you know, from banks that are offering lower yields to higher yielding money market funds. Uh, I, someone uh, someone uh, described that as, that's called a bank walk, right? A slow moving bleed of deposits from banks into money market funds. That's totally manageable. That's not an issue. The, the issue is not the walk, it's the run. And that's the problem that the current framework doesn't solve. Yeah. Okay. So I'm just thinking out loud here right now too. Like you have these, these banks keep making headlines, like Silicon Valley banks first. Um, then you had, um, we have signature first public. There's some new headlines for some other banks, uh, today as we're recording this on Thursday, um, May 4th. And if you're looking at a mark, like if you look at the on a mark to market basis, the portfolios are, I guess, even the, uh, this probably, I'm just thinking, is this going to stop or is this just going to keep, you know, this can be like the next one, the next one that people start to look at and say, okay, this one is insolvent. Cause if you look at the portfolio and then that just causes more folks to pull out, like, do you see an end in sight here for these regional banks, um, you know, having problems? Yeah, well, I think um, I think it's gonna. Uh, we've we've entered a, a point in this uh, crisis where the the ineffective policy framework is creating the instability that we're seeing. And one of the things that is the thing that's happening now, like the the move with SVB, and you know to some extent First Republic, 
was that people were people were raising concerns about the overall solvency of the bank because of the treasury issues that I was describing. Now, part of that has been resolved in the immediate sense because the Fed has created a program that allows banks to borrow at par against those securities. So in, to some extent, that immediate liquidity issue that an immediate solvency issue that might occur as a function of, uh, of those mark-to-market uh, -market losses on bonds has been addressed. But what it has exposed is this, this basic, this other issue, which is that bank runs are self-reinforcing dynamics. And what we've started to see is that speculators, particularly big name, you know, hedge funds uh, have come in and recognized that they have the ability to actually create the bank run by speculatively attacking the equity. And so it's interesting, the first losses in First Republican SVB, what happened was people recognized the fundamentals were bad, that created the bank run, which created the stock losses. The dynamics that we're seeing in the most recent period in the last couple of days, for instance, with Western Alliance uh, and PacWest is actually a totally different dynamic. It's very important to recognize the difference. What we're seeing with PacWest and uh, Western Alliance is that um, speculators particularly have written a lot of puts. So leveraged speculators have, have bought a lot of puts on these names, right? And that that has driven the stock price down. And these are not big market cap, cap stocks. Like, like PacWest is like a billion dollar you know, market cap. It doesn't take a lot of money to start to create really big sizable moves in these equities. And then what's happened is the stocks have gone down a lot. And then what's happened is that people have called into question their solvency. But when you actually look at the fundamentals and both, both banks released really interesting information overnight about their deposit base, there's no issue with their deposit base, right? So this is not a fundamentals issue leading to a, a deterioration in the stocks. What's happening is there's a speculative attack on the stocks, which is then driving it down, which raises questions about the solvency and permanency of the banks, which will now induce uh, small businesses who aren't covered by the 250,000 to pull their money. And so that's the problem is we've got to break that cycle. It's a very different cycle than what happened with SVB and First Republic. Okay. So I imagine you mentioned like folks buying puts. I imagine there's probably um, short sellers who are like looking at this space too. Um, and I suppose if you're a small business and you see your bank is in the headlines, like in the financial media is like the stock plunges right. probably makes you nervous. So you want to pull out or make sure your, um, your capital or your, your money uh, is, is safe or somewhere else. Okay. Can that be remedied? Because I mean, I, maybe this is a totally naive question. I don't, can you stop short selling just, or is that just like, a, that's just like a natural part of like the market it has there. Maybe it's a really dumb question to ask. No, but... no, no. It's not, it's not, it's not a silly question at all. So I think okay. there's a couple ways to address that. I mean, first of all, essentially what causes the actual failure of the bank is not the stock price going down. Stock prices go up and down all the time. What ends up causing the failure of the bank is the, the end run. Well, if what you did is you created a situation where uh, the depositors were in a position where they were not going to lose money on their deposits, right? You would break that chain from the stock price going down to the people getting spooked to the people pulling their money. 
right? And so from a policy perspective, if you address, if you, if you lower the risk or eliminate the risk that the depositor takes a hit if the bank fails, then what you do is you put yourself in a position where that chain ends right there. Mm. So that is, you know, I think in many ways, that's probably the the best targeted way to deal with that, with that, and that because it it would eliminate the self-reinforcing aspect of it, it would help eliminate the desire to you know buy a bunch of puts on these names in order to create outsized market outcomes. And just for for context, like the amount of puts that are on PacWest or Western Alliance and places like that, you know, are like thousands of times, tens of thousands of times more than have ever been done in a day before. And so we're talking about like orders of magnitude in terms of the amount of speculative attacks. Now, you can also directly, uh, uh, policymakers could directly uh, influence uh, the equity price by stopping short selling. That's something that is a policy solution that has been implemented before. Um, you know, European regulators in the, in the financial crisis period actually stopped the ability or, or put on meaningful restrictions on the ability to short sell. And that is a policy tool. Like if what's happening is non-economic speculation that can create meaningful value destruction that needs to be paid for by the taxpayer as these banks fail, then it is totally within the, the government's purview to act in the best interest of the taxpayer. All of this is in the best interest of the taxpayer in order to protect the deposits and help break the negative speculative activity in the market. Mm. Let me ask you this too. Um, and, and thank you for like helping me understand too, like the short, the short selling bit and that there, there was a ban during the financial crisis, um, in, in Europe at least. Okay. How much of this is like the responsibility or the blame? I don't know how you want to phrase it lies at the Federal Reserve and its policies in recent years. Does the Fed have any sort of role or blame in this? I'd probably move it away from like blame and more just like the mechanics of how these things work, which is that the Fed printed a bunch of money. Essentially what they created was a lot of bank reserves. A lot of those reserves, you know, that money flowed into the banking system and many banks got a relatively significant rise in the amount of deposits uh, into, their, into their banks. And oftentimes they got a rise of deposits that exceeded what uh, credit opportunities they saw available to them. Um, and so they had a couple of choices when uh, they were in that situation. One choice is to uh, deposit those reserves back at the Federal Reserve, um, you know, which is essentially where deposits end, no matter what, because um, the uh, money, cash, uh, that gets printed by the Federal Reserve is actually a liability. So it has to get there eventually. The question is, do they put it directly back to the Federal Reserve? Or one of the things that they were encouraged to do through uh, the post-crisis regulatory framework was to take the, those, those, that money, those, that inflow of deposits and buy treasury bonds and agency MBS because those assets at the time were yielding, were higher yielding than putting the money directly back to the Federal Reserve. And those assets were considered money good because they are money good. They will be paid back no matter what. They will get paid back. And so they didn't have 
uh, any capital requirements uh, that were associated with them or had relatively minimal capital requirements associated with them. And so what ended up happening is that the regulatory framework, which uh, incentivized these banks that got the big flood of deposits from the, from the Fed printing, the regulatory framework incentivized them to take that money and buy the longer duration securities uh, as being the safe and responsible way to do it. Well, fast forward a few, you know, fast forward 15 months and the Fed starts to raise interest rates, which creates those mark to market losses on those securities. And uh, there isn't a sufficient deposit framework in place. And so you start to get this imbalance between the mark to market assets and the depositors who are able to move their money quickly out because of the risk of loss. And so it's that constellation of things that, you know, it's uh, it's the monetary policy and the printing that occurred, the regulatory framework, and the policy framework around deposits that have all combined to create an environment where many banks are facing the same circumstances. Now, the ones that have have, have uh, gone under so far are those that were probably the you described as the most mismanaged in the spectrum of of banks the mm -hmm. the the least conservative given that set of uh, of uh, of policy framework and and monetary policy but it's not you know there are lots of banks who basically faced the same circumstance and as a result are facing pressure as a function of the, the monetary policy, the regulatory framework, and the poor deposit framework that exists in the U.S. right now. Got it. Okay. I want to ask one more um, thing on this because it's just something that I'm, it's come up on the show and something I've been thinking about. Um, when I think of regional banks, one of the things I've learned is that a lot of them um, have the exposure to commercial real estate. How do you think about that as a risk in all of this? Well, I think commercial real estate um, is, uh, it, it's, an, it's important to recognize that commercial real estate means a ton of different things, right? There's like 20 different forms of commercial real estate. And the thing that is on our minds, you know, which is uh, class A, shiny buildings in, you know, midtown Manhattan, is represents only a tiny portion of the commercial real estate uh, overall exposure. So I don't know, as an example, if you take your, your PacWest as an example, their exposure to you know, inner, inner city office buildings is 3% of their loan book, right? So people will talk, well, they have a bunch of commercial real estate exposure, but you know, only a tiny portion of the overall market are those office buildings. And, and look, like I think people who, uh, who do this for a living will say, if you're, you know, if you're trying, if you're holding, uh, you know, a big city, shiny office building, um, it's gone down a lot. You're probably going to have to re-equitize it when the debt comes due. You know, that's certainly a reality that's, that exists there because there's, there's going to be pressure in there. Although even there, like a lot of the LTVs are 50% and, you know, you're not, you're not going to experience massive, massive losses on those bonds. Uh, or on that lending, even at, you know, given the 50% LTVs and even with the change in cap rates uh, and the, the higher interest rate, the higher borrowing costs. Um, so you might see some losses there, but it's not, it's not, you know, people are very quick to say CRE exposure looks like office buildings down 70% in price, going to make all the banks bankrupt. And the reality is, no, that's not true at all. Like that is a that is a very bad way of thinking about it. When you look at like a bottom, if you go granular and you look at a at a bottoms up picture here, 
you're talking about even with relatively extreme loss rates in commercial real estate, you know, let's say you, you have a loss rate of uh, 200 basis points or 100 basis points in these, you know, 100 to 200 basis points in these, uh, in these assets over the course of five years, which would be like a depression-like loss rate. You know, these banks have more than enough capital to absorb that and use their NIM earning capacity to earn out that set of losses. And that is a relatively extreme scenario. And that's because the overall picture of commercial real estate you know, points to, even in extreme circumstances, loss rates of like 200 basis points a year. Got it. Um, I got to say, I'm really enjoying listening to you and le I'm learning a lot. I'm taking a ton of notes. I want to go back to more of like the macro outlook and um, looking back at my notes. And you were kind of talking about that we're in this income-led cycle. We haven't seen this since the 70s. And that path to a recession takes longer than people expect. When I think of the 1970s, um, it makes me think of stagflation, like do you, I would love to just hear more on your thesis. Do you think like we'll have more persistent inflation, um, slower growth? Like what's kind of your outlook, um, I guess, more generally on the, on the economy? Yeah, I, I think, you know, most of us in our careers, I, I, I recently um, was looking at a chart of uh, durable goods prices um, and durable goods prices peaked in 1995 uh, and fell 50% from 1995 to, uh, to 2020. And, you know, most of us, that's, you know, that, that encompasses our entire professional careers <laughs> uh, and then some. And so, you know, basically we've all become accustomed to this world of globalization driven, um, uh, you know, a boom in manufacturing capacity in East Asia, generating persistent disinflationary, deflationary pressures across the economy, which has allowed us to basically run tighter, you know, easier monetary policy than if that didn't occur because overall inflation pressures have been relatively muted. I think the problem is on a more structural basis, a lot of that a lot of what drove those dynamics, which was, you know, hundreds of millions of people moving from farm to factory in China, the uh, emergence of NAFTA, the China and the, you know, in, as a most favored nation and the WTO, the globalization and the creation of global supply chains, all of those things were hugely deflationary. And they're mostly behind us, not ahead of us. And so what that means is that those disinflationary pressures that, you know, so much described the last 25, 30 years are no longer going to be in place. And if anything, we're probably going to see the opposite of those circumstances where businesses are seeing a benefit of constraining volume sales in favor of higher nominal sales so that they don't have to, they don't have to produce as much and they continue to raise their, their top line. And so that whole dynamic, I think that's a big shift that, you know, occurred around COVID, was, was supported by COVID, but it's really part of that secular dynamic. And so we're not going to go back to the world where, you know, then to connect it to monetary policy, we're not going to go back to the world where the Fed instantaneously responds to every growth of downwiggle by cutting interest rates. Again, what we've all experienced through the course of our professional careers, that is over. Right. If you go back to see how the Fed responded in the 60s and 70s, they were much later in response 
to uh, growth downturns. And that's because they had to fight the inflationary pressures in the economy. And that has a lot of implications overall in terms of thinking about, you know, how are asset prices going to play out? Like if you connect it then to the bond market today, right, the short end of the bond market, the short end of the curve is expecting relatively significant and fast cuts by the Fed in response to what could be a growth slowdown. And that dynamic is very, very akin to what we've seen over the last 25 or 30 years in terms of the Fed's reaction function. But the circumstances are totally different. PCE Inflation is 5%, not 1.5%. And so the Fed will react differently. But the markets, particularly the bond market, is pricing in more of the same of the last few decades. Let me ask you that. So there's a disconnect between what the market thinks and is pricing in versus kind of what the Fed has been signaling. Um, why Why do you think, why do you think there is a disconnect Um and the significance of that disconnect in your view. Yeah, I, I, I think um, often people will look at markets and think, oh, the, the, that must be the smart money, right? <laughs> the, the smart money, and, and particularly, I think there's this, this reputation of, you know, the bond market being the smart money relative to the silly stock traders. And I think, you know, that all, all that is, exists in market pricing is a set of collective expectations. And if you look through time, you know, collective expectations in general reflect uh, people's, you know, people projecting their experience, their recent or, you know, long-term experiences into the future. And what that does is it creates meaningful differences. You know, when, when underlying fundamentals change significantly, often markets don't price that in very effectively because people are just pricing what they've experienced in aggregate because that's what they expect to, to happen. And I think, um, you know, the bond market, it, it reminds me very much, uh, not, not to get too geeky about this, but it reminds me very much of 2011 in the bond market where the bond market kept pricing that we were going to have a normal economic rebound coming out of the financial crisis, but instead it took, you know, 10 years of zero interest rates to get us out of the financial crisis. And so the bond market went from pricing in a normal rebound and a set of tightening associated with it to pricing in zero interest rates for a long time. It, they were totally wrong because the economic environment we were in was not a cyclical environment. It was uh, a secular deleveraging and the bond market got that totally wrong. I think we're seeing the same exact dynamic today, which is the bond market's pricing as if we're in 30, you know, continuation of 30 years of deflation or disinflation when the dynamic is totally different and the bond market's got it dead wrong as a function. Yeah. So um, let me ask you your viewpoint. So do you think we're, we're higher for longer? Is that what you think? Higher for longer here? Yeah, well, I think I think the um, I think that's the most probable outcome here is that we, you know, the interest rates will be uh, elevated for longer than is currently priced in given the set of macroeconomic dynamics. Now, I think it's important to recognize that there's a whole suite of different probable outcomes, possible outcomes. And so, you know, when I say I think higher for longer is more probable than the other, the other outcomes, that's exactly what I mean, which is, you know, let's call it a 50 or 60% possible outcome. It doesn't mean that other things couldn't occur. And when you're trading markets, like what you're doing is you're comparing the range of, you know, the probability weighted range of possible outcomes 
to the range that's priced in in order to try and get that edge. And so when I see that, what I say is higher for longer isn't certain, but it looks more probable than is currently priced into the bond market. And so that looks like a good option. It isn't a certain option by any stretch, but it looks like you know the probabilities look tilted in the favor of betting on higher for longer relative to what's priced into the market, which is you know, pretty in the bond market is an aggressive cutting cycle happening almost immediately. And I would also take it like with the bond market pricing that in, that's, is that, that's, that would be considered like, that would be something bad's going to happen or to, to kind of force the the Fed to cut. Is it expecting like a, a recession? Like what is, help me understand like that, that kind of dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the bond market, I think there's two possible paths that align with the current bond market pricing. One is, um, would be a significant recession or a, or a slowdown in the economy for which the Fed would, um, would want to respond um, by cutting interest rates. Another plausible explanation is an expectation that inflation will meaningfully decline over that same period, which would allow the Fed to bring interest rates down and still maintain elevated real interest rates uh, for the economy. Uh, you know, both of those are, are possible paths. I think it's interesting when you connect it then to the stock market. You know, this, you know big, the big picture is that stocks aren't really down very much, right? Uh, you know, relative to where they were at the start of 2022, you know, we're down 10 or 15%. Like, no, not, you know, stocks at 4,100 is no crisis <laughs> in terms of what's going on here, right? Stocks at... 41 or 4,200 is like, you know, fine, um, just down a little bit. And I think actually when you when you put those two things together, which is you look at how stocks are priced, which is still elevated, and you look how bonds are priced, which is an expectation of significant Fed cuts, actually the story between the two of them paints a picture uh, that the highest probability outcome is a Goldilocks outcome or, um, you know, an immaculate disinflation you know, a disinflationary dynamic that occurs without any meaningful growth hit. And I think that combination of things uh, looks particularly improbable. You know, it would be, uh, is it impossible? Certainly not, but it would be essentially the first time ever that we were able to get a massive decline in inflation without any hit to growth or any hit to the equity market that came with it. I, I want to hear your thoughts on like the probability of the Fed getting inflation back to that 2% target. Um, and I know they want to. Uh, do you see that as a likely probability? Is there, yeah. is that possible? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think, um, I, I think the, the, the likelihood that the Fed brings uh, inflation down to 2% over the medium term um, is pretty high. Uh, and the reason why that is, is that the consequences of the Fed choosing not to do that um, would be very significant and detrimental to the, you know, medium and longer term growth rate in the economy. You know, Chairman Powell yesterday, you know, he, he starts, he, he, he has started a couple of different times, his comments at the presser talking about how bringing inflation down is a necessary step for long-term uh, low unemployment, low and stable unemployment. 
right? So they, he very much sees those connections. And I think he's right from a macroeconomic standpoint. Economies that have elevated and unstable inflation typically have lower structural employment uh, and, and, you know, worse investment because of the uncertainty of uh, future activities. And so I, I think they're very committed to that. I think that, and they're not, they're not going to come off of that path. I think the question, the bigger question is, you know, how fast are they, do they feel that they need to move in order to get down to that, you know, get down to the 2% number, they sort of in the projections are looking at over the course of, you know, let's say 18 months that they'll get to the 2%, you know, that that may be a reasonable path. Um, the risk is if they don't move fast enough, you start to get entrenchment, inflation entrenchment in the economy. We're already starting to see that in a relatively meaningful way. And so, you know, if I was sitting in their shoes, I'd be moving faster, not slower, uh, in order to to reduce the corner, you know, the 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 risk of uh, inflation entrenchment, which over the long term would be very detrimental to the economy. Wait, can you explain the inflation entrenchment bit? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, at, at at the basic level, you know, inflation in some ways is a mechanical uh, exercise, which is, you know, what's nominal spending, what's the productive capacity of the economy, and the difference between those two must be essentially the change in prices, right? It's, 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 uh, it, it's mechanistic in that way. But it's also, uh, it's also a psychological phenomenon. And when I say that, I, you know, kind of sounds like I'm talking about like astrology or something like, no, like, what it is, is it's a set of expectations that you know start to be put into people's minds and then they behave on the on on those expectations and so mm. as an example i mean here's a very very simple example i'm sure you experienced this some, to some extent yourself like when you sign contracts with vendors right like the way the contract works is you know there's a whole contract and then it says and this will reprice you know two percent uh in 12 months you know unless you cancel Right. And so that's a very simple, simple thing that's in a bunch of different, you know, in typical business contracts. Well, you know, before the COVID, the way it worked was all those said 2% or 3% or something like that. And the way it's worked in this period of, high, of elevated inflation is more and more of those contracts say five and then they say 10 and then they say 15. Right. And that is inflation entrenchment because what it means is essentially no matter what, when that contract comes due 12 months from now, then I will have to there's embedded inflation in that contract, right? There, prices will rise in the future as a result of those contractual obligations. And that is, that is like the quintessential version. I mean, that's a very tangible version of what inflation entrenchment is. And so the, the basic risk that the Fed has is every day that inflation in general is elevated and above their target, People are making decisions that are predictive of elevated inflation in the future, which necessarily creates or almost mechanistically creates the inflation, the realized inflation when it occurs. And it's only if you start to see the slowing, you know, and that, I should say that also that's a contractual version of it, but it also happens in wages and and other pre, you know, future agreed upon prices. And the only way to slow that process is to weaken the economy, because if you know, the vendor is facing a tight economy, they'll put in the 10 or 15% step up 12 months forward. But if you're the only client that they have available and you say, no, I'm not going to pay 10%, then they'll bring that down in order to make the contract more attractive to you. And so that's how inflation entrenchment occurs and how it gets resolved through a weakening of economic conditions.
Interesting. Yeah. Cause I'd imagine like once you, let's say you start paying, um, like, okay, I'm, I'm a coffee chain and I'm going to start paying, um, uh, $17 an hour versus like $15. Wouldn't it be kind of hard for them to be like, okay, no, all right, everyone, we're going back to 15, you know? Right. Okay. Right. I mean, we've learned very much that particularly with wages, like there's incredible, um, uh, wages just have this incredible momentum in terms of the wage growth. Like people start to expect that their wages will rise and rise and rise based upon what they've experienced. And when you look at, you know, wage measures, all sorts of different wage measures, like, you know, unit labor cost measures came out today, 6% a year, you know, Atlanta fed wages, 6%, 67% a year, like all these wage indicators are showing that that wage entrenchment, that dynamic that you're saying is absolutely starting to become embedded in the economy. And that is the risk because once it becomes embedded in the economy, it is really hard, really, really hard to break those contracts and to reset those expectations. Let's say you're the coffee chain and you had to raise your prices because of inflation, but you find that like, Hey, everyone's still coming in and buying the coffee. They're not going to like, they're, they haven't stopped buying my, uh, my coffee at $7 when they're, they're still buying it. They were still buying it at $5 and they haven't stopped at $7. So what's the incentive to even lower the price again? Like if people get used to it, is that, I yeah, think I, that's a bad, bad example. <laughs> no, no, I think actually, it, I think it's a great intuition and something that we're actually seeing in the market. So let's take, uh, let's take McDonald's as an example. Right. And so, um, you know, McDonald's saw in their most recent quarterly statement, uh, you know, same store of sales growth year over year of like 12%. Okay, well, that that's pretty interesting. I mean, that's hot, right? On a nominal basis, 12% same store sales for McDonald's, you know, which is like pretty, pretty, you know, pretty boring in the grand scheme of all the different businesses that exist. Well, how are they able to do that? Um, you know, embedded down in the in the the bowels of their statement is that they raised prices by eight to nine percent, right? And they still had volume rises of like three percent. And so what? So they're experiencing exactly. You know, it's it's not a coffee shop; it's McDonald's. But they're they're experiencing exactly what you're seeing, which is that they're raising prices significantly. But they're not seeing any demand destruction. Mm -hmm. And if you raise prices and don't see any demand destruction in terms of volume, then what you'll do is you'll keep raising prices and keep creating this dynamic. And inevitably, what's happening there is the prices are rising, right? And if the prices are rising, then the people who are buying the products are sitting there saying, well, you know, my, my consumption basket is rising. And if my consumption basket is rising and the economy is still strong and I still have bargaining power with my employer, well, then I'll go to my employer and say, hey, look, I want a higher wage. And that's how this dynamic continues to play out. It's not a spiral. It's just, it's, it's what I like to say is that you often get a price, wage, price, uh, maintenance of high inflation. And that's really what we're seeing in places, you know, I think McDonald's is such a, such a good example of the intuition that you have. Mm -hmm. Well, I have to say, Bob, you're a very good teacher and I enjoy listening to you. And I saw on Twitter, it's your pen tweet that you taught an intro macro and markets course for a decade. I want to ask you where you taught that. Um, and you shared that um, a POW camp, uh, what was it? There was this paper um, 
the economic organization of a POW camp, um, which covers it, that you said it covers every major macro concept in 11 pages. And I know we only have a few minutes left, but I want to hear about your teaching and I want to hear how that paper in particular, and I apologize for like kind of the random shift covers macro themes. Like what can we learn, um, from that example? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, I had the, the pleasure of teaching uh, all of the, the new first year associates at Bridgewater for a long time. Uh, the introductory uh, macro class was kind of like a college style class for almost a year uh, covering uh, how the macro economy and markets works. And, and I always love that piece. Um, uh, and it was always the, the starting point of the class because um, what it allowed you know, you, us to see is that even in you know a relatively unusual uh, environment, the same sort of macroeconomic dynamics that that exist in the in the global macroeconomy existed in this relatively you know defined and constrained environment. So you know even you know basic things, basic things like the idea of um, of people exchanging. Uh, money today for money tomorrow. So it's called bread today versus bread Wednesday, right? And what is the time value of being able to eat your bread today versus giving your bread to someone and getting more bread in, in five days, right? And that's a fundamental concept of all of, uh, of all of the capitalist system, right? Because it's people giving up their money for an expectation of earning more money in the future. It also has great lessons on monetary policy. Which is that um, you know the, the way monetary policy worked there. Uh, cigarettes were the primary form of currency for a variety of different reasons, and so what you saw was when there was an influx of cigarettes, you saw prices rise as a function of that in cigarette terms. And then uh, one of the interesting things about cigarettes is that they uh, had a, a use, a use not just uh, for money purposes. So they were then smoked, and then you had a deflationary environment in the economy, which then lowered prices over time until the next instance in which cigarettes were delivered by the Red Cross. And so that's a perfect example of a monetary cycle that existed in the context of this overall environment. And so, you know, when I think about the economy just more generally, it kind of goes to your, your original, your, your first question. I think in many ways, there are these sort of really core drivers of of what drives people's economic behavior, you know, some rational, some irrational. And if you understand the way in which people uh, behave, if you understand those sort of core economic drivers and behaviors, then you can really start to see, you know, the macro economy is just really a summation of everyone behaving in those ways. Everyone thinking about what is bread worth to me today versus tomorrow? They might be thinking about televisions today versus tomorrow, but you know the same basic concept holds. And so these sort of laboratories of behavior really help clarify and understand what are those sort of core fundamental relationships, drivers of the macroeconomy and markets that we can apply. You know, as we're as we're living uh, our day to day and trying to understand what's happening. I love that. So fascinating. And again, I've really enjoyed having you on and I want to have you back on at some point um, because I feel like there's so much more to ask you and you can only get so much in an hour. Bob, I want to give you the last couple of minutes um, if you would like uh, to talk about, you know, some of the work that you do at Unlimited. Um, also share 
where folks can find your work or follow you on social media. Just take the next couple minutes. And also if there's anything we didn't bring up that is top of mind for you right now, um, please also share that as well. Yeah, I mean, I think we, what, a, what a great uh, uh, whirlwind through the macro economy, through the regional banking dynamics, inflation. I think I feel like we've we've covered about as much as you could possibly imagine in, in an hour. So uh, I really appreciate you having me on. Um, for people want to know more about what what uh, what we do at Unlimited, um, they can check out unlimitedfunds.com. I'm the PM of the uh, of an ETF uh, that uh, that Unlimited runs, uh, and you can learn more information about that uh, on our website. Uh, you should also, for people who are interested in uh, getting a real time sense of how I'm thinking about macro and markets in the economy, uh, definitely check me out on Twitter at Bob E Unlimited, um, where I'm very active. I can. I can uh, I can almost uh, see this conversation through the lens of you know tweets that I've had over the last couple of months, and so if you want to see that in real time, very active there. So definitely check me out. Love talking to people uh, uh, about what they're seeing and going back and forth. It's a it's it's been a really enjoyable environment uh, getting getting into the FinTwit community. So definitely check that out. I love it. Well, Bob Elliott, founder and CEO of Unlimited, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your ideas. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Hey, everyone. I really hope you enjoyed that video. Be sure to hit that like button, the subscribe, and that bell so you won't miss any new videos.